2: Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we will be joined in a little bit by Boston College coach Mike Gambino, an exciting time with the Eagles program, and we're uh, going to get into all of that with Coach Gambino. But first, I've got to tell you that the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com All national database. All right, Joe, another week. It is, it is November. We continue inch, two inch closer. To the college baseball season, whenever that happens to start in 2021, uh, and you know we're we're deep into uh, into fall ball, a lot of programs wrapping up around the country, some programs still going. Everyone's going to be done this month, though. It's uh, it, it fall is is continuing full of rest here, and, and we're uh, we're continuing to cover it over at baseballamerica.com. Yeah, the fall has really gotten kind
3: of spread out here, which is I guess good because it is kind of nice that it gives us something to monitor and follow as the months go on here there are always teams that start earlier midwestern teams northeastern teams typically start a little earlier although not so much boston college and we'll get into that with coach gambino here in a little bit but typically there there, there is a little bit of difference there but it seems like there's a lot more difference this year in terms of and understandably so given everything going on but there does seem to be a, a lot more variability in when teams have started and and all that. So we, we've had this kind of extended fall practice period, which again is, is kind of nice because it gives us, it almost like it, it has come in waves where we've been able to, to focus on a small handful or small group of teams through each little, each little period here. So it's, it's been uh, kind of nice that the, the weather of course is turning, the clocks have shifted. So we are now in what I like to call a seasonal depression season where uh, you know, you get the, the low light in the afternoon, which is kind of a, it's not my favorite thing. It's kind of a, kind of a bummer for me. I don't know how you, you feel about it. I have sensed a little bit of the, um, so for every, for every take on something, there is kind of like the devil's advocate take. And then over amount of time, there's kind of like a backlash to like the general consensus. So I actually have seen on social media this year, a little bit of backlash to the traditional take, which is that, oh, it sucks that we fall back and it gets darker earlier especially if you live in a city on the eastern half of your time zone where it gets dark even earlier so I've seen a little like I said I've seen a little on social media this year a little bit of backlash to that where there are some people that are like oh actually I do like that the time change because I you know I get up earlier and it's lighter outside and I know people with kids like it a little bit because it's easier to get their kids up in the morning when it's lighter outside so I've sensed a little bit of a we've just gone so long with all of the opinion on that heading one direction, I think, that we've now reached the point where everything reaches an in internet debates, where we've now reached the backlash stage where people are trying to trying to make the devil's advocate or contrarian argument about daylight savings time.
2: You know, I gotta say, I haven't seen that, but I do wonder how much of that is just because people are at home more. And so I used mm-hmm. to, like, I, I really hated, you know, going home in the dark, you know, leaving the office at six and it's pitch black. Even if you were to leave at 5:30, it would be pitch black usually um, already. But now, you know, if you're not making that commute or if you're making that commute less uh, frequently, then you know maybe maybe that's driving a little bit of that. Um, I mean, I sense that it's probably mostly just general internet backlash, but in a world where people's commutes have been uh, been disrupted, uh, maybe that's that's contributing. It because I uh, definitely prefer the daylight savings time aspect of this i i I would not like uh the uh i I would prefer my 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 daylight at the end of the day not not at the start of the day
3: i would i would agree i wonder if it's one of those things where it, it seemed like for a long time now that it's inevitable that eventually we will do away with this because there is just so much negative sentiment about at a bare minimum at a bare minimum, there's negative sentiment about the idea that why do we still do this? Why do we shift, you know what, like picking one or the other might be preferable to what we have now, which is the shifting for a few months a year. And so I think there's, an, I've made an assumption for a long time that eventually we'll get to a point where we change that just because of that. But on the other hand, it's just such a low stakes thing in the grand scheme of things that I wonder if anybody's ever really going to seriously challenge. I know. Like, there's always these, you see these ballot measures that end up, and congratulations, by the way, to states like Arizona and parts of Indiana that have already done this themselves. But for the rest of the states out there, um, you know, you'll, you'll see occasionally you hear news of, of some state putting a ballot measure on, on ballots to at least poll the, uh, the electorate about how they would prefer the times to, time to work. Uh, but it seems like nothing really ever actually moves in that direction substantively. So I've actually reached a point where I'm a little bit, I don't wanna say pessimistic, but I just, I'm less convinced now that we're ever going to see change on this because it is just such a, a relatively low stakes thing in the grand scheme of things.
2: I would agree. I would also say before we move on that my preference would actually just to be to do it with time zones, do it with daylight savings time, just get on a global time where uh, you just say, it's one o'clock you don't have to worry about where you're saying it's one o'clock and like for some people one o'clock p.m would mean it's part of the work day for some people it would be at night like you just we don't need this stuff anymore uh it, it came from a, a different time and we have moved on but that uh will almost certainly not happen uh anytime soon or ever so we uh we persevere and and we we muddle on with the uh the, the changing of the clocks. Uh, today, though, we want to talk about Boston College, which, as I noted, it's an exciting time for the Bird Ball program. That, that's their uh, their Twitter handle, BC Bird Ball. Um, so it, it's an exciting time for them. They have some really exciting draft prospects looking ahead to this year and beyond. But but most notably, uh, they have a group that. Uh, could be first-round picks in June, and that gives the entire team a lot of excitement around it. You know, BC is a a program, at least right now, that is not equipped to, you know, compete on a Omaha super regional ACC contention type level uh, on an annual basis that they need to kind of build to to this. Uh, You'll remember them going to super regionals a few years ago. And then they kind of have built back toward towards that. And, you know, as the program continues to move forward, you obviously hope to decrease the amount of time between teams that are, you know, super regional and Omaha caliber. Um, you know, but for right now, they, they've been a little, they, they had to reset a little bit after losing guys like Justin Dunn and Mike Kane into pro ball. And now they have this next group coming and, you know, it, it's a team that, you know, ACC is going to be really good this year, you know, we've, we've had a lot of ACC coaches on here, uh, this offseason, you know, you, you heard Brian O'Connor talking about how excited he is about Virginia, um, you know, Louisville is going to be really good, Miami has this exciting recruiting class, you know, Florida State's never uh, going to be too far out of the mix there, and, and you know, we've talked about how we like Georgia Tech next year, and Duke, and, and all the rest of this, uh, but, we don't want to let BC get lost in the shuffle because that's a team that is going to be very dangerous. And if you're not taking them seriously in the ACC next year, you know they they have the ability to uh, to really, you know, beat teams. I, they're not going to sneak up on anyone, but they, they could they could really do some damage within the ACC and then into the, the NCAA tournament. So exciting times with that. They also have a new a stadium that they built just a couple of years ago. And now their indoor facility is nearing completion and the Pete Frady Center uh, is scheduled to open, I believe that is next week, uh, and that's their indoor baseball and softball facility. so a lot happening uh, up on chestnut hill and so we're uh, we're excited to, to talk about all of that with BC coach Mike Gambino. This week on the baseball America college podcast we're excited to welcome in Boston College coach Mike Gambino. The Eagles are in an exciting spot as we look towards 2021, some exciting draft prospects, a lot of expectation around what the season can be for them. So coach, we're, uh, we're excited to talk with you and we're excited to, uh, to see what you guys have uh, next spring when you get back out on the diamond. Thanks for
4: having me guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And, uh, and I appreciate everything that you all do for, for the game of baseball in general and college baseball specifically, the more, talking about the game and more that we'd be able that we're able to get our fans and, and even more importantly kids younger kids excited about college baseball and baseball in general is awesome so really thank you for everything you guys do
2: absolutely well you guys had a later start to the fall than i think you're used to but that was i'm sure that was just a great feeling to get back out there after you know such a long time away from the team and, and away from the diamond
4: yeah uh it was awesome you know, we were able to to get on the field right away for about a week and a half, and then um, a little bit of a, a pause and then kind of um, get back going again. And, and, you know, the pause had nothing to do with, with our guys. I, I cannot tell you how proud I am of this ball club and these, these guys, you know, from day one, um, all they talked about is they were so happy to be back in school and, and more specifically, just so happy to be back together, back on the field, back with their brothers um, and they've sort of said from the beginning, whatever they have to do to make sure that they're able to stay safe and stay on the field um, they've done. I mean, knock on wood, um, you know, we've only had one positive test since we've been back and that was actually a kid that it wasn't his fault. Though he actually got it from his roommate in quarantine right when they first got here. Um, you know, so he hadn't, It's just kind of a, a bad luck type deal, but yeah, um, these guys from all the precautions PPE, PPEs and masks and and social decisions they're making and um, it's um, the dedication to each other the dedication to the program how much they care about Boston College as a school how much they care about a program and how much they care about winning uh, it's been really special to,
3: to be around there's a lot of reasons uh, for excitement around the program as, as Teddy mentioned going into, this 2021 season, you bring back a lot of the guys you had in 2020, you've got three, you know, high draft picks and Freilich and, and Morissette and, and Pelio. Um, so I'll, I'll open the floor to you and then let you take it in any direction you'd like about what has you most excited about this group of guys that you have for next season.
4: Yeah, it, it is. It really is. And, and, you know, when you think about um, sort of the, you know, the the long-term build of the program and we sort of, Joke and laugh uh, that you know. Four years ago in this program, three and a half years ago in this program, we didn't have a baseball field. I mean, we you know we shared a baseball field with practice football field and tailgating, and you know we we were recruiting and trying to you know figuring out ways to have success and win baseball games and develop players with, um, you know you know probably arguably four years ago the worst facilities in in college baseball, definitely in the Power Five. Um, you know, so we've got this really cool mix of, on this team, you know, the fifth year seniors, the COVID seniors, whatever we're calling it, the guys that are back from last year, you know, they played on Shea Field their freshman year, um, you know, our junior class, that that draft class you're talking about, they were, when we recruited them, they didn't know they were ever going to play um, in the Harrington athletics village. They, they didn't know they were going to play in our new ballpark. Um, you know, that sort of got dropped on them and on them, um, after they, you know, when they, the winter of their senior year, when, when the recruiting process was over uh, and now we have a freshman class that's has a chance to be really special and they're moving into the Pete Frady center. So it's this really kind of cool year, you know, besides, you know, three potential first round picks. And besides the fact that we have a chance to be really, really good. It's just really cool mix of guys that remember playing on Shea field that remember playing in the, in, in the birdcage, as we used to call it, that, They spent their sophomore fall when Harrington Athletic Village was being built. Um, that we were you know driving to Babson to practice at Babson's field a couple days a week and a couple days a week practicing on our football field. You know, they spent that fall doing that. Um and and like I said, now this this freshman class, which I think has a chance to be really, really talented and um you know it's gonna be fun to watch through their development. Um they're gonna spend next Monday moving into a P. Frady Center with um, in training room, weight room, new locker room cages. I mean, beautiful, beautiful building. So I think the excitement about this field, this team is not just what we can do on the field. Um, but just what it means for the program that going forward, as we've have been building here and building here and building here. Um, so that that's one thing. I think the second thing too, is, and I sort of mentioned it with the, with how they've been handling, um, COVID, but, um, this team hasn't flinched on anything this fall. they, you know, we start, we stop, we have to there's times you have to change practices, your testing day changes, all these. It's just stuff is constantly getting thrown at them and they don't flinch. They all they, they they love being around each other, they love being here, and their attitude has just been unbelievable. So to spend um to spend a spring with them, you know, and be back playing games with them is, is gonna be awesome. And then and then the third thing, I think the team has a chance to be really good, right? And it it is a year where everybody has depth and everybody is veteran right like everybody's rosters are expanded and guys coming back and um, it's going to be a great year in the ACC it's gonna be a great year of college baseball but um, I do think this team has a chance to, to really really make some noise i I do think it has um it has real potential to end up in Omaha and and to have to have a chance to play you know hopefully for a long time into the summer assuming we are um back to somewhat normalcy in the summer right?
2: Absolutely. You know, so you have these three potential first round picks. And I think because of the way things worked out the last two years, maybe the best of them is the least well-known. Because Sal Freilich came in and was really good as a freshman, but then he got hurt. And you know missed kind of the stretch run as you guys made that run in the ACC tournament. And then what happened this spring happened. Meanwhile, Mason Pellio played USA that summer after his freshman year and Cody had a really, uh, you know, good summer on the, in the Cape Cod league. So Sal Frelick, though is potential top five, top 10 type pick, uh, kind of what, what's the inside view on Sal Freilich from, you know, what you've been able to see over the past few years. So Sal, you know, Sal
4: and Cody, actually were three sport guys. Sal was Massachusetts Gatorade football player of the year. Um, so, you know, he, um, you know, we thought he had a chance to be really, really special and, um, you know, be a big impact type kid, but, uh, nobody, not a lot of people in the area or nationally really realized it until he went to the futures league that summer and and tore it up. And people were like, you know, his tools jump out, his athleticism jumps out. You know, all of a sudden, people start looking, and I got scouts calling me. They're like, "This kid's an eighty runner with sixty power and hit ability." And like, what's going on with this kid? And, you know, like, so, um, and then obviously he did what he did freshman year. So, um, you know, and and then for him, it's not just the tools that make him so special. Um, he has a really, um has a really good feel for just and he's one of the most competitive kids you ever going to be around so he has just feel for just whatever game we're playing how can I figure out a way to beat you um, and that's kind of how his brain works and you saw it really really early in his college career here and you see it you know, you know every day all, all of our fall scrimmages I mean he is all he cares about is winning and you, and you might say you know it's just an inner squad but like that's all this kid is talking about is how to win this game um so i think you combine you know it's it's a it's a elite athlete elite speed um it's an above average arm it's above average ability above average power with that type of makeup i mean that's that's why even though this the the sample space might be a touch limited um, because of a kind of a weird college career with covid and everything um it's why guys are talking about them you know there's a lot of you know why he is in that mix with the first position players that don't have a chance to be taken um you know and, and I think he's a safe he, it's a tremendously safe bet with him because of not because of the tools and the combination of the tools and the makeup
3: obviously those those three guys that, that we've been talking about are are kind of the headline names and names that that people who've been following along uh, might know but if if, if this team is going to be as good as as we think it could be and, and you think it could be there you're obviously we're going to need more than those three guys to kind of step up and, and be dudes for you. So, is there someone else on this team or a group of guys on this team that we're not talking about yet that we should be, or that maybe evaluators aren't talking about yet but should be?
4: Well, I I think you've got um sort of two separate groups you're talking about. For the evaluators, you know, you have you have this group that's back last year. Jack Cunningham was hitting 400 last year, um you know, with power. When the season ended, Brian Dempsey's a is a career 300 hitter in the ACC um, and an elite, elite defensive shortstop in the ACC. Uh, You know, Dante Baldelli is a six five runner. Um, So you've got this group of, you know, fifth-year seniors back that all would have been out playing professional baseball as far as positionally Joey Walsh on the mound as well would have been out playing professional baseball that that's back. So from the, you know, that, that group of guys that would have been playing professional baseball that's back are going to be impact, impact guys. Um, you know, and then some of these other, other younger guys, you see Luke gold um, who's who has a chance to be turned into a middle of the order bat um, was playing every day for us last year before things shut down. And, um, you know, Luke's got, you know, big, big power. Um, it's, watching him take BP is fun. And, you know, but he also just was making that he had a huge two out, two strike line drive single to right at Clemson last year, right before things shut down. That was like, had just started to make this really good step offensively of like starting to learn how to hit at this level. Right. You're, you're one ACC weekend in. And um, I think he's going to be a lot of fun. I think one guy that people don't really talk about, this isn't, you know, the evaluators aren't going to talk about as touch as much because the tools jump don't jump off the page. Um, but Peter Burns is a guy that very much makes his team go. What he does defensively behind the plate, and from a leadership standpoint, um, is, um, you know, the, there's nothing in the scouting report that the that the uh, the scouts will write that can really fully encapsulate what Peter means and does for a ball club, for a pitching staff. Um, you know, so he he's the one that he's one that's really special. And and then you know there's some really good freshman position players, you know, Cam Leary is gonna be a special bat, Joe Vetrano is gonna be a uh, um a big time middle of the order bat and a potential um weekend starter very early in his career. Um so th- I mean this is a this is a fun group. It's a and it's a fun group with with depth and fun group with guys sort of top to bottom positionally. Um that have a chance to be very, very good.
2: You mentioned that the Pete Freight Center uh, is going to open. I, I guess next week now is, is the expected date on that, and that's something you've been working to a lot. But you know, I just wanted to talk about Pete as as the individual that's that meant a lot to your program before his passing about a year ago now. Uh, just in your time around him um you know what's maybe a, a favorite memory or something that's stuck with you you know i mean he's he's just such an inspiring character around baseball and, and beyond um and, and you got to spend a lot of time with him what what do you what do you cherish about that and, and what do you remember about him
4: yeah that's um and we could talk do a whole podcast just on that right but i think if you sort of work backwards. Um, you know, when we had his funeral on campus last year, besides the fact that there wasn't enough room in the church and, you know, St. Ignatius Church here on campus, the upstairs, the downstairs, um, there wasn't enough room, but, you know, there was over a hundred former players, any that had either played with him or been here while he was director of baseball operations. Um, we had a hundred former players on the steps, the church, surrounding his casket when they brought his casket in. Um, so to give you some type of an idea of what he meant to his teammates when he was here before he was sick, when he was a regular college kid and, and a captain here, and then also to the the kids that he, the players that he impacted as our director of baseball operations. You know, we hired him after he was diagnosed. Um, you know, you know, you, you got, you know, besides the fact you got big leaguers, you had know, three big leaguers you know, in December, making sure some that were local, some that had to fly in for it um, to get here. And but even I remember I got a call, uh, Jeff Burke, who um, pitched here, spent a couple of years in the Giants organization. He's uh, done playing baseball now. He was on his honeymoon uh, in South Africa when Pete died, and called me and had figured out a way. To take a twenty-four hour flight to leave his honeymoon, he called me from South Africa. A twenty-four hour flight to leave his honeymoon, to get back here just in time to here for the funeral, and I was like, Jeff, don't do that. Like, but just think about that idea of of Pete being able to impact the people that he was around. For somebody even to think about doing that, or to have a hundred guys standing on the steps as his casket walked in, it you know uh, was was brought in. So. Um, and the impact the the impact he had on all of us um is hard to really put into words you know besides the fact that he literally changed the world i mean the the progress they are continuously making on that disease that's still and it's going to be for years and years and years um attributed to pete and the awareness he brought and the ice bucket and what it did I And mean, you know when, when when pete first got diagnosed people we, we would ALS, and then people would say, what's that? And then we'd say Lou Gehrig's disease. And they knew it was bad, but you didn't really know what it meant. And now, ALS is is just part of the national lexicon. Everybody knows what what the disease is and how bad it is. So um, this disease is going to end because of Pete. That's a fact. Um, and then I think the, the the memories for me are things like, you know, f- for those years that he was traveling with us when he was sick, and his health, health was deteriorating, deterioro- deteriorating, sorry, you know, early on it was, you know, he just might need somebody to help him up and down the stairs, walking in on the, out of the dugout or some, you know, and then it turned into like guys might have to help him open up a granola bar on the bench during the game. And then it turned into helping him put his jacket on. And then it turned into helping him in and out of his wheelchair. And then they were pushing his wheelchair. And then guys, and this is stuff that like, you never had to ask anybody. You think about what it's like to be around 18 to 22 year old boys, and they can be self-absorbed. It's just Right. And, even the best of them can be self-absorbed at the time. And he would travel with us, he'd be on the bench. And every time everywhere we went, somebody would make sure Pete's okay. You know, you'll turn around and you know they're they're feeding them on the bench or they're feeding them at dinner and helping them get a jacket on, or what? turn around somebody's tying a shoe. So to see to see that. And part of that also was because of so many of the conversations Pete would have with these guys and um, to help them through everything. And and these guys loved him. Um, and he taught them um life lessons and leadership lessons that um, that can never really be repaid. You know, um, and that, that these kids are affected for the rest of their lives. Um, so for us now to be able to walk into that building uh, every day with his name on it and to and to remember that and remember, you know, Pete is he, Pete was the living embodiment and and now since he's passed, you know, the, in a Jesuit education, we talk about what it means to be men and women for others. And that's what Pete was. The second he got sick, there was nothing about him. He said it for the very first meeting with the family: "We're not going to wallow, not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We're going to go to work, and we're going to end this disease." And Pete knew it wasn't really going to help him. Um, you know, so it's to, to, to walk in that building every day is going to be is going to be
3: amazing. And so you're right in that, and I think Teddy and I would agree with you that you know the, the topic of Pete Freitas and, and what he's done and what he did and how the legacy lives on is certainly a a topic we could, uh, we could do podcasts every week for, for <laughs> months or years, or, you know, just, um, just an incredible, uh, incredibly inspiring character in, in college baseball and, and someone who will, who will continue to live on, you know, he, he will, he will never in that way leave us for, for those things. So, um, yeah, absolutely agree on, on all accounts there. We'll, we'll pivot a little bit here and enlighten the mood a little with the question Teddy and I like to ask all of our guests here on the show, and that's for you to name your favorite sandwich. And I'll give you a minute to, to think here, and I'll tell you the way some people have taken this. Everybody answers a little bit different. Some folks have just built their own sandwich, you know, and said, well, I'd start with this kind of bread and this cheese and this meat and these toppings. Some people have just named a sandwich at some local place that they that they have regularly. So there's that option as well. So you can really take it any direction you want to go, but we're curious what you would describe as your favorite sandwich.
4: Well, it it's it's going to be disappointing it probably for you guys. And, um, my number one, I'd go peanut butter and jelly, old faithful.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I have
4: a peanut butter and jelly sandwich almost every day in my life. You know, even, you know, that, that was, you know, back when I was in minor league baseball, that was your daily spread. That's what you ate, right? Peanut butter and jelly. That's just, um, but, um, still, you know, I, I have no problem eating a peanut butter, and jelly sandwich. Like I said, I don't care if it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Um, I would go peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And if I, if I was going um, kind of a little bit more on the grown up side, which um, I don't know why you would want to, but if we went into a little bit more of the grown up <laughs> side, I'd probably go with the chicken palm or an eggplant parm.
3: Oh yeah, hard to beat those two. What's your <laughs> what's your peanut butter to jelly ratio?
4: Peanut butter is the star of the show. You don't. It's not a jelly and peanut butter sandwich. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and jelly sandwich. So. It's at least two to one, if not maybe three to three or four to one.
3: Yeah. I kind of agree because it, if you, the other thing is if you get too much jelly, then you start to lose some of the jelly out the backside of the sandwich and then you're just wasting, you know? Um, so I'm with you. Yeah, the peanut you don't to have to take
4: a, you don't want to have to take a bath after you eat the sandwich.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah. If you eat too much jelly, it ends up on your face and on your hands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm with you. peanut butter am, needs to be driving the bus.
4: I'm ardently against grape jelly. I am really? strawberry or raspberry. Um, and, uh, I am, I, I am only chunky for the rare switch up.
3: Yeah, no, ch- for, chunky peanut butter can get out of here as far as I can. As <laughs> yeah. as, I'm not, a, I'm not here for chunky peanut butter, honestly. Like yeah, I'll just with, eat, I'll eat some peanuts if I just want some, some peanuts. That's kind of the way I feel about it. Yep.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, we got one more question here for you and, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple one, you know, fall baseball winding down now what did you learn about the team uh you know over these last couple months
4: uh i think the the you know it, this was it was a hard run obviously for everybody and we stayed you know we did w- weekly calls weekly zooms um just check-ins all the way through um starting last spring and um you know very little baseball talk last spring just making sure the guys were okay like these guys world, their worlds were rocked
1: um so
4: it was just just checking in on guys and, and making sure everybody's okay. And when we would we would bring in speakers and talk, but really it was just staying together. The thing that we talked about from the, from the moment the season ended was the thing that we know that we control is staying together. Um, and we did, and the boys did. And, and so I think the biggest thing once they came back, the excitement of this team to be back together and to be back here um, was... You know, was inspiring, was humbling, it was amazing to see how much this group loves and cares about each other and how much this group loves and cares about the program. Um and, you know, and Boston College, it was it's been it's been awesome. It really has coming out to practice every single day. And you know, there are times when, you know, you know, one of the things that we that we talk about, I, I sit in our first meeting, I'm like, If you think this all sucks, if you think masks sucks and the COVID protocols suck, you're right. COVID sucks, right? COVID's stupid, it does. Like everybody across the whole world will tell you that. Nobody likes any of this stuff, Um, but it's better than the alternative. So we have to do a really good job at that if we want to stay here and if we want to stay together. And to a man, they said, all we care about staying together. We want to be together Um, and that's what we're going to do. Um, And Um, and there hasn't been, there's been no complaining. There's been no whining. Um, you know, there's obviously some anxiety and some uneasiness about COVID, like everybody else in their life has everywhere, right? It's just COVID makes everything a a touch uneasy because everybody's day to day. I said to the boys a couple of weeks ago, you know, Bill Belichick had said in a press conference, um, at one point that the Patriots are basically operating hour to hour. So I said to them, I said, frame that in your mind with the with the resources, a professional organization with those types of resources, and one of the all-time greatest coaches in in any sport that is as organized and laid out as anybody ever, they're operating hour to hour. So just think about what that means, how everybody else's lives are right now. You know, and they've just been taking um, things as they go. They've been they've been, you know, operating every day with with gratitude, um, and with great attitude um and i can't like i like i i am not looking forward to that month and a half over christmas break whatever that december you know into january when i don't get to be around these guys i just i look forward every single day to, to come into the ballpark and come to the field to be around them that's kind of one of my biggest takeaways that they they love each other and they love they love being here and it makes it motivates me every day
2: thank you again to Boston College coach Mike Gambino for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast today. We went right up to the the edge of our allotted time with him as as you might have been able to ascertain from uh from the way that interview ended. We really appreciate him uh him taking the time for us and uh you know letting us know, you know, giving us some more insight behind what's going on at BC and um, you know, beyond a, a really great guy to talk with uh and, and you know just a lot of you know he's been around bc for you know most of his his baseball life and, and he really y- you can feel the passion there so always exciting to uh be able to talk with him and and hear about what's going on up there and especially in a season like this where they have some outstanding draft prospects uh, that are you know going to be in the first round mix and, and you know even in the top of the first round mix in a couple of those cases so a lot of different ways we can take this, Joe. Uh, I'll kind of let you uh, you go where you want with it. What What did you hear uh, from Coach Gambino that that maybe uh, caught your eye the most or caught your ear the most? This this being an, an audio medium, not a visual medium. Sure.
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, no video on this. Nothing caught my uh, caught my eye necessarily. That would be that would have been something if he could, uh, you know, uh, give us something visual over over the audio medium. But uh, no, I. Um, I, I was kind of struck because I think we know we know about the guys that we talked about ad nauseum with him, which are those three guys, you know, Pelio, Morissette, and Frey Lake, who are potential first-round picks who are going to really be driving the bus for Boston College in 2021. If Boston College reaches its potential in 2021, it's it almost has to be because those guys show that they could be and should be first round picks. That said though, you know, there are names on this roster who got guys that I've heard of and knew about that. I just kind of forgotten about that have put up good numbers. He mentioned some of them like, like Brian Dimsey and Jack Cunningham, for example. Um, while, the, while those big name guys, those high draft prospects are going to be what really helps determine the ceiling for Boston college. Those guys aren't going to be doing all of the heavy lifting and I think that was easy for me to to forget that I kind of looked at this team as, oh, well, they've got those three guys and, and that alone is going to allow them to compete in the ACC. And I think to some degree that's true, but this is also just a really veteran team in a lot of other places. He mentioned the other guy up there, he mentioned was Dante Baldelli. So it's a, on top of being a really talented team in terms of that high-end talent, it's also a pretty experienced team. And I think that makes them particularly dangerous as a group, because it's not, it, it's not, um, it's not just a matter of having to bring along the rest of the roster in time. And you hope that the top end talent can keep you afloat until everybody else gets up to speed. I think in, in a lot of cases, it might be some of those lesser named guys that kind of help keep them, keep them afloat because they've been around the block a time or two, even longer than, than guys like Forsett and Freilich and, and Pelio. So we'll, um, I'm, I'm, uh, was reminded of that in our conversation with him. Big picture, it's, I think a lot of it comes down to what they do on the pitching staff behind Pelio. If, you know, if we're being honest, uh, the pitching last year was was not particularly good for them. And even Pelio wasn't, he has some good peripheral numbers, um, but it wasn't a, necessarily a great start to the season for Pelio. And starting pitching outside of Pelio really struggled in a lot of cases. So that's, I think, going to be, if you're talking about the specific piece of the team that's going to have to take a big step forward. I I would point to that because this is a team that went six and nine last year and they were actually, as part of a discussion we'll have later, they were actually a a team that we're looking looking at as a bounce back candidate in 2021 because things didn't go great for them in in 2020. And you and I debated them as a potential team to put in the preseason field of 64 last year because we kind of thought you know, what if they arrive a year early? That's possible. We were always kind of looking at 2021 as their big breakthrough year, but it wasn't inconceivable that they put it all together in 2020. And at least early in the season, that just wasn't really happening. They had some opportunities. They went out to play Arizona state, got swept. Uh, They played Clemson. what the first and what ended up being the only ACC weekend again on the road, but got swept, um, they had one more road series against NC State that following weekend. NC State was playing pretty well at the end of the year, um, so that would have been a tough series. So it looked like maybe that wasn't going to be the case. They arrived a year early, but it was it was certainly something that was um, that was on our radar. So um, they, I, you know, I think we're both confident it's a different story in in twenty twenty one. But it goes be, the reasons for optimism go beyond just those three guys that we uh, we talked about a lot from a draft perspective.
2: And so one thing I'd say about whether they could still have arrived a year earlier or not is that, you know, they play the first, what is it? The first five weekends on the road every year. And so like, okay, it wasn't, they were under 500 this year, but you know, they're used to that and, you know, they, uh, RPI, I mean, I don't want to get into RPI significantly, but they were 136, you know, you get into ACC play, you start winning more games, that's only going to go up, and I mean, they're a team that traditionally closes really well, and if you go back and you look at, you know, 2019, um, they got themselves like way closer into uh, bubble contention than I think anyone had realized by making the ACC tournament semifinals. Um, they were into the top 60 in RPI. You know, they beat UNC on that day, you know, win or lose in the, in the ACC title game. Like, I mean, obviously win and they're in, but like lose, you know, even even just having beaten UNC and getting to the ACC title game, like probably kicks their RPI up another couple points. They're still probably not getting in, um, but they were... They were very much on the bubble at that point and um so I get my overall point on that is that just because things weren't looking great for bc at the start of the year like you do kind of have to remember this is all happening on the road and you know brighter days are generally ahead for them now it's not great that they got swept both at clemson and asu like both of those are you know kind of you need to find a way to win a game but I don't want to say that their tournament hopes were already dead in the water, um, you know, 15 games into the season. They they do though have to find a way to start faster if they're going to hit the way that we think they can. Um, you know, especially because we don't know that there's so much uncertainty about what the postseason will look like in 21. Um, you can't go around wasting weekends uh, for sure. But you know, it's a it's an interesting team when, when you look at it, like, like to your point, um, it's not just those three guys that that's for sure. They do have, you know, as, as Gambino mentioned, some, you know, fifth year seniors as everyone does, but, you know, a guy like Dante Baldelli, you know, who he mentioned, like could really, um, you know, be an important player for them. And so they, they have, they have this experience from some of these older guys. And, then they also do have as he mentioned some exciting young players as well and if uh if they can get some uh, you know development there some some early impact from some of those freshmen and uh whether we're talking about true freshmen or second year freshmen like i i think it's uh it's a group that could you know be very intriguing and um you know even going beyond just the uh the 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 standout trio that is going to to draw everyone's attention the spring and is drawing everyone's attention this fall. It's it's been a very popular place for scouts to go to uh to see those players this fall. So I, I'm I'm intrigued by the overall team. I, I think that you know they have a lot of things going for them, not just this year but but beyond. Um but but especially this spring. It's it's a group that you know, again, I don't know where I would peg them in the ACC. Maybe it's a mid-tier ACC team, but mid-tier ACC team that's peaking at the right time, uh, you know, that that's that's the kind of, of team that, that can be very dangerous in the postseason.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, but the thing about it is, I think they have a relatively high level of volatility in terms of where they could finish, not just because of their own, like, let's say, you know, One of those three guys just doesn't have the season they're looking forward to. Obviously, every team is prone to having an inopportune injury or two. That's just baseball. That kind of stuff happens. And and suddenly, you know, you know, it's just not things aren't quite lining up like they had hoped. So you couple that with the fact that to your point, you started, you alluded to this a little bit right before we jumped into the interview, the ACC is always good. I think it's particularly tough in 2021 because you just kind of go up and down and there are very few teams and this is not a shot. I don't mean this pejorative, you know, when I, when I say that it's volatility with Boston college, because I think what is driving that is there are very few teams in the ECC that I can say with 100% certainty that Boston college will definitely be better than that team. Because you, you, even even after you take out the teams that we think could be elite, elite teams like Louisville, and Virginia, and Miami, if everything clicks right, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, you've got the class of teams: NC State, Florida State, Clemson, Wake, Georgia Tech, Duke. Those are all top
2: 25-ish teams. You know, I mean that's where we have Miami ranch right now.
3: That, that's a good point. I, you know, I guess the number one recruiting class there is always going to give them a little bit of a different sheen, I suppose. But um, you know, but then you start to talk about teams. North, what kind of bounce back do we get from North Carolina? We know they're they're pretty talented. Virginia Tech is clearly better. I would take Boston College over Virginia Tech, but that that program is clearly better. Notre Dame clearly better off to a really good start in 2020. Again, I would take Boston College, but Notre Dame clearly better.
2: I don't know that I would. You and I have disagreed on Notre Dame for months now so
3: right that, that's not a, <laughs> that's <laughs> not a new debate we've had for sure but so but I think we're, I think us having that debate right there illustrates my point point. and that's that you know in a 14 team ACC I could see Boston College finishing fifth or sixth if things really go. I mean goodness gracious, they could have three first round picks. However,
2: I mean I, I don't want to rule out the idea that they're like the third best team in the conference. I mean they could win theoretically but you know i i the ceiling is very very high indeed um but, but they these, can also yeah finish, to your point like they could end 11. up yeah and <laughs> and still be a tournament team <laughs> right you know the acc has uh you know not historical depth they've had this kind of depth before uh but but they are they have the potential to be the deepest conference in the country um you know, I think even potentially deeper than the SEC. We'll see how that shakes out. But this may be one of the years that the ACC actually runs deeper than the SEC.
3: And I think we might see that expressed. uh, You know, we've talked about this a lot. and I mean, nothing has been made official in this regard. But just about every, and I don't know if it's one of those things that's actually based in fact, or if it's just something everybody has heard, so therefore it gets passed around. But Like every off-the-record conversation that I have with a coach these days about scheduling mentions the possibility of four-game weekends. And so let's just –
2: we should say that's not an ACC-specific thing. When Joe means everyone, he means Literally everyone.
3: everyone. (laughs) And so let's just entertain that idea that the ACC plays four-game weekends and they won't be able to do a full round-robin probably. That seems like too many weeks. But let's – even if they do a regular – Ten weeks with with four game weekends, so you're playing, you know, ten a's, you know, uh, ten weekends of four games is forty games, and let's say they limit teams a little bit to where you're not doing midweeks every week. First of all, I mean that's that's this type of scenario where it, it was easy. It's easy for things to snowball on you if things aren't going right. But secondarily, in Boston College's case, I think that's actually probably in some ways a positive for their postseason hopes, because let's be honest, one of the differentiators with BC and a lot of the rest of the ACC is quality midweek games are hard to come by. You know, Florida state can't swing a cat without hitting a good, you know, state of Florida team. They can play pretty easily in midweeks to say nothing of teams in, in states like, like Georgia and the rest of the deep South. It's a little bit harder at BC. And so I think that actually might help BC to where in, in other years they might feel a little more compelled to play more midweek games against local competition to get to 56 or something close to it in a year where there's maybe not even no pressure, but actually they're being told to not play even 50 games. Um, If their schedule is 75%, 80% ACC games, while that would be an absolute gauntlet, it is going to be good for the RPI. And it, it does create the scenario where you could see 11 teams in the ACC, 12 in contention, potentially when it comes right down to it at the end of May. I mean, those really seem like the conditions for a situation like that to be created.
2: I mean, it's quite possible. There's a lot still to be known about what the tournament will look like, what the selection process will look like, you know, RPI, et cetera. Uh, But the more ACC games that BC plays, uh, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. You you can definitely see that uh, as, as being a positive for it. And, you know, we'll just have to see how all of that shakes out, um, I, I also want to mention here, you know, the the stadium stuff. Um, I wrote about it over the summer when the Red Sox were using the the BC facilities as their alternate spring training site or secondary spring training site uh, before they moved to uh, the, their alternate site to the AAA stadium in Pawtucket. Uh, but during actual spring training, the Red Sox wanted a, a site that was closer than Pawtucket. Um, so they could easily move players back and forth and they landed on, on BC. And there were, as I recall, five big league teams that used college facilities for their, their second spring training alternate site for their spring training alternate site. Um, But BC was kind of a little different because it's a place that, you know, as, as coach Gambino mentioned, like, it was a football tailgating lot that was it, it had this dual purpose it was a baseball field and a football tailgating lot and because of that there were a lot of concessions made to it as a baseball stadium uh there was no the, the outfield fence was a temporary fence you know it's a tailgating lot people are driving on it so you know it's not the cleanest surface and during the the fall if it rained on a football weekend they weren't going to be able to use that field for like a week uh but now they have their own place it's turf um and and it's a really nice field and you know they've just come a really long way if if you're going from as he said the worst power five facilities in the country to a place where the red sox say we want to host our spring training camp here i mean that that's night and day and you know we'll we'll see what the the that does for the development of the program but obviously it's a a huge development and then building the indoor facility is a huge piece of that as well like if this season goes well for bc they can host on campus previously they wouldn't have been able to they would have been trying to figure out could we use fenway park for the weekend or you know can we go to a minor league facility somewhere around here now it's a non-issue and you know that's a huge thing for 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 the program but more than that just being able to know that you have a place where you can go practice all fall undisturbed um you know that that's massive for for them and um you know i i that should not be overlooked the way that bc has invested in its baseball facility over the last um you know 5 to 10 years
3: yeah it's huge and i'm glad that coach gambino said it because i feel like it has freed up my conscience to say it for years when we've talked about stadiums i've hesitated from just being just straight up saying like yeah bc before they got this new place was was the worst and it's not even close but the fact that he said it i feel like i can freely say like absolutely that was the worst in in the in the power five and i don't just say that because i and i you know I, i've actually never been there i so i don't just it's not just my own opinion but like that was just the consensus opinion from people who cover college baseball, other coaches. Like it was just, you, I almost never got another, no other stadium really got brought up other than BC back in those days. So it really is quite a turnaround for um, quite, quite a turnaround for them to get that. And when you look at, uh, you know, we had a similar conversation about UConn not long ago, you know, we, we, we talked I forget if it was, I, I assume it was a on podcast discussion, but at one point we talked about UConn and, and their new stadium and, That's a big deal for them, too. I mean, these are two of the the the, the flagship uh, college baseball programs in the Northeast, Um, certainly with the way UConn has gone, maybe they are chief among them, but they were lagging in facilities and and not anymore. And as we move to a college baseball world where maybe just maybe uh, the, the schedule is. You know, going to get moved back at some point in the future and allow these northeastern teams to maybe play a few more home games, maybe have the weather a little more in their favor. Uh, those, those are big deals and, and set these programs up to compete better nationally,
2: yeah, absolutely. And you know, BC's now in a place where you know, with the, the Freitas Center, it's going to be the best facility in the northeast. And uh, you know, they're the ACC team. I'll be interested to see what what all of that does. Um, you know, as they you'll know, compete with. St. John's and the and UConn and, and some of these other programs in that region, um, can BC pull away from them because of this, or, you know, Yukon and St. John's, they've got their niche. And now in Yukon's case, they've got a new stadium themselves. Like what does that do for them? And, oh, by the way, Bainhamton is building like an SEC stadium in Penhamton, New York. I'd need to check in on that. Um, haven't done that since, uh, since the pandemic started, really, but um, Northeast baseball, you know, the the building boom that we've seen around the country, it's in, it includes them, and you know, that's really great to see because that's a part of the country that you know isn't as advanced as some of the others, and you know, so for BC, for UConn, for these places to get their their facilities, uh, that that's a really significant thing. All right, so with that, Joe, we, we referenced this a little bit. Uh, this week, we, we wrote about the top 25 bounce back candidates for 2021 season. Uh, we, you, we led that list with Oregon State right-hander Kevin Abel, of course, the 2018 uh, College World Series heroes, one of them. He started the uh, game three of the championship series against Arkansas. And he's now coming off of Tommy John, ready to lead the Oregon State rotation. When Mitch Canham was on this podcast uh, over the summer, he was very excited about having Kevin Abel back in the mix for the Beavers, and, and so he leads this list. It's an interesting list, just looking at players and teams that you know were kind of down in the the abbreviated 2020 season, but that are at least in our estimate, ready to uh, to bounce back and, and come back stronger in, in 2021.
3: There were, there were a few themes, I would say, <laughs> as you're putting this list together. One of them, I, I hadn't even really thought about until we got into the conversation about Boston College, but you look at teams that are on this list, like, well, BC for one, Is on this list, but you go a little bit further down and you've got Ohio State and you've got Oregon State on this list, you've got St. John's on this list, and there are little differences in why those teams got off to slower starts. But I think one theme between them, one commonality between them is lots of road games early. And some of that is a little by choice, like Oregon State, of course, always goes down to Arizona, and and that's like that's part just part of their schedule every year. So some of that is. Some of that is, is is something they enjoy doing. It's by choice, and some of it, of course, is driven by weather. But that is uh, one I think one theme here. Another theme that you, of course, can't ignore is Tommy John's. There is a whole run of pitchers in the middle of this of this rankings where I think we have four in a row that are coming off of Tommy John's in the in the last couple of years. So there was there was that as a theme. Um, But then there's also just you know. Uh, more typical cases, I think, you know, Abel obviously is also falls into the injury injury bucket, but he's such a unique case because he shines so bright early in his career. Then he had the the injury. And then it was, there was kind of a question about what will we see from Kevin Abel in 2020? There was a lot of like conjecture and, and just wondering aloud what, if anything, we'd see from him in 2020. And well, we never really got that chance because the season was canceled. So all of that has kind of been pushed into 2021 where he's going to get to uh, be on the mound uh, probably on opening day for Oregon state. So that I think has created a little bit of excitement around his return that that there would have been excitement about him pitching in general, but I think the fact that it's going to be to start the season, and getting a full season of Kevin Abel adds to that. Um, And Stanford and Cal State Fullerton in the top five, I think are, are interesting because those are for a couple of different reasons. One is, I would have loved to have known if Fullerton would have been able to pull itself out of that four and 12 start because we've seen them do this kind of thing before. Um, but I think you and I would agree that given what we saw from them the year prior, it seemed a lot less likely than it has in past years that they would, that that they would be able to pull themselves out of that. Um, but so then in, in 2021, my questions are, do they get off to a similarly slow start? I would bet they get off to a little better start, but then, Can they they build from there in the way that they normally do? Um, Or is it a team like we've we've seen a little bit in the past that just doesn't have that extra gear? Stanford's a little bit different because, as you've mentioned before, that was a really young team. And, you know, you knowing the recruiting as well as you do pointed to the fact that there was a lot of guys on that roster that maybe uh, were really talented, but were a little more raw, a little, uh, you know, a little more so not quite ready to be stars right away. I think we, we, and I put myself in this category, are sometimes overly, um, we, we overly assume that just because it's a really talented group of freshmen that they're gonna jump on the field on day one and be stars. And we see that quite a bit, but we get, I think we, we too easily fall into thinking that that happens all over the place. And in some cases that's just not quite the case. And so you've made the case before that while maybe Stanford wasn't going to be a regional team, in 2020, they were probably going to finish the season better than they started it. And so now we'll get to see that again in, in 2021. Of course, they add another a top 10 recruiting class, recruiting class, pardon me, led by Drew Bowser. So that adds a little more intrigue there as well. So fun list to put together because it's, um, it, it really is kind of a shorthand, almost like a little guidebook for storylines, because you've got some some player names here. You've got some program names here. And it really kind of is a, a quick, it, it's like a, a shadow storyline guide to the 2021 baseball season in terms of things you should be looking for uh, in terms of improvement in 2021.
2: Yeah, uh, one note on Stanford. I mean, we've probably talked about Stanford before on pod, but you know, the they lost, I want to say it's like five everyday players from the super regional team that was good enough to be an Omaha team, like they happened to get sent to Starkville. where you were not winning a super that year uh but you know you think about losing a guy like kyle stores or andrew Josh back like it's hard to bounce back from that and you know they lost several of them all at once and they were playing a lot of freshmen in their place it wasn't entirely freshmen but you know they just it wasn't quite ready at the, the cardinal just wasn't quite ready to to go at the start of the season and you know now those guys are a year older and they've got another um you know group of reinforcements coming in and yeah i'm just very interested to see what stanford has uh what oregon state has to to stay out on the on the west coast though and cal you know those 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 three pack 12 teams what do they look like as they're trying to bounce back from uh you know pretty disappointing by their standards uh at least starts to the 2020 season and maybe one or more of them would have bounced back within the Pac-12 we we obviously didn't get a chance to see that but now what do they look like a year later i i would also say we didn't really do this ultimately uh but at least when i was thinking of candidates joe like i kept thinking of like big 10 teams i i noticed and i think you only included ohio state uh but they were far from the only big 10 team that i felt like could could be considered to be a bounce back. And, uh, you know, some of that is just that Northern teams going on the road all spring, uh, you know, before conference play for the most part, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult, but I don't think that that conference really started as quickly as it would have liked to, as it's capable of uh, in 2021. So that's, uh, you know, that that's another kind of group that I think, you know, you could be looking at. Uh, as as a potential bounce back, uh, you know, overall within the confines of the 2021 season.
3: I think that's fair. I mean, I think Ohio State ends up getting the nod just because they were ranked. And I think...
2: Yes, the, I was very excited about Ohio State this time last year.
3: Well, and, and I think rightfully <laughs> so. I mean, there were I wasn't really fighting on it. Like, it, you know, it made a lot of sense to me. And I think part of also what puts Ohio State there is also that they... Um, this is where some of the... Um, the emotion, I guess, versus just the logic comes into play a little bit is also that they really had an opportunity with that second weekend series against Georgia Tech and just were not particularly competitive. And so I think that adds maybe a little bit of extra sauce on top of what was already a, a little bit of a sluggish start. So that ended yeah, up being- the- Like
2: I, I thought about I Nebraska, I thought about Minnesota, yep. uh, both under 500 and, you know, the Illinois was off to a nice start, Iowa off to a nice start, you know, Michigan had its its big moment and then kind of came back, and, and Maryland was off to a nice start as well, so I don't want to throw, I want to say the entire Big Ten was off to a bad start, but that, you know, some of these bigger programs, you know, Ohio State and Minnesota have been at the top of, or near the top of the Big Ten very consistently over the last at least 30 years, and a lot of cases longer than that, and, and they were off to more sluggish starts this year.
3: Yeah. Without going through team by team and looking at early season resumes, it really kind of felt like Indiana was maybe the team that had made the most hay. I mean, they, they, they grabbed a game off LSU to begin the season. They beat East Carolina at the Leclerc classic. They played Ole miss. They lost Ole miss, but Ole miss I think was going to be good enough that even that loss at a neutral site was going to be helpful from an RPI perspective. So it felt like they had made some hay in terms of wins that were really going to pay off down the road. But you look at the rest of the Big Ten and um, again, not having looked at every single resume here, I wonder if it was going to be closer to a, a three bid Big Ten year versus a five bid if we're going on the on the spectrum there, because I just don't know that there was there were a lot of teams here that really had, had laid the groundwork that you need to lay within the Big Ten to set yourself up. Um, to be an that large team because you in the Big Ten, because there are going to be RPI landmines, and we've talked about this before. We don't need to fully relitigate this, but there are going to be RPI landmines in the Big Ten every year, and you have to give yourself some padding from that, and that means you have to make some hay in the non-conference, and I just don't know that there was a ton of that in the Big Ten last year, so I, I think you're right.
2: Yeah, I don't know that there are any other conferences uh, that were really looking to uh, – like, like they, they... – might be a bounce back overall conference, but that is one that, that, that I thought of. Um, I'm also intrigued by BYU. If you go a little further down this list, uh, that's a team that, you know, if you rewind it to again to, to 19, uh, was in the at-large mix. Um, I believe won the West Coast Conference regular season title and then lost in the tournament. And, um, you know, was a little shy on RPI to get in uh, as an at-large mildly controversial that they weren't more in the mix than they were uh but then added um a top 25 recruiting class it was number 25 and uh, again play they were a little younger that inexperience probably showed a little bit they end the season with a losing record now they're a little older um are they ready to uh to give it a go again at the top of the wcc and frankly i mean they might have been ready to do last year as well we we didn't get to see wcc play maybe they were just a little uh, overwhelmed at the start of the season and would have would have rounded into form but now again with the benefit of an extra year i think byu could uh could be a really solid bounce back candidate
3: no i, I totally agree I, I like the team a lot I've, I've liked that what that program is doing the last several years 2020 might've just been a tough year for them because Pepperdine jumped out and was, was clearly really good. And Portland was much improved. Santa Clara was much improved. I thought San Diego was legit good as opposed to a mirage early in the season. It would have just been a, I think it would have been a tough hill to climb for them to, they hadn't played WCC play yet. I get it. But in terms of like, Maybe sneaking into an at-large position. I think they were going to take enough losses in WCC play. It would have been would have been hard to to get there, which I know is not the argument you're making. I'm just saying that, you know, that that's an evidence of the fact that they had gotten off to as slow a start as they had.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I the thing though with uh, the WCC having Pepperdine as well as they were, maybe they could have uh, finagled themselves a second bid. Um, uh,
3: very yeah very likely I mean I think I think that was certainly on the table um they just had so many candidates I mean you know San Diego, San Diego's RPI to, to the extent that's important four weeks into the season was actually better than Pepperdine so like I, but I, I think you're right I think WCC very likely is, is a 2 bid league um ultimately I think it, it very likely goes somewhere other than BYU though just because you know they, they dug themselves a little bit of a hole
2: absolutely so it's an intriguing list uh you can check that out over at baseballamerica.com um lots of uh lots of things to think about as you're you're thinking about the 2021 season i feel like we could all use a little optimism regarding the 21 season and and these are some some places where we're optimistic of that better times are ahead uh at least relative to uh to what they did uh within the con the short confines of the 2020 season again some of these players and teams undoubtedly would have rebounded in the second half of the season but now uh they'll they'll have to wait until uh, this spring for their shot at that uh at that redemption all right so that'll do it for us here on this edition of the baseball america college podcast we have continuing fall coverage for you over on the website in addition to that top 25 and there's plenty more we're um as a as a group uh, as a a baseball america group larger group uh, we are entering prospect season this week is the first week of uh, our our series of ranking the top 10 prospects in each major league baseball organization the rays started it out on monday we'll be working through the east divisions for the next couple of weeks here Uh, and you can check out all of those uh, as they go up over at baseballamerica.com and again that eventually feeds into The prospect handbook where we rank the top 30 prospects in each MLB organization so if you're if you're into that side of it, you can order that 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 book is available for pre order. And you know magazine subscribers or digital subscribers have access to uh, to the top 10s as they are published on the website, so I would encourage you to check all of that out, you can follow Joe and me on Twitter, I am at. Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We appreciate everyone who is subscribed to the podcast. And if you are not subscribed, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app of choice, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts, you can find us and we greatly appreciate it. If you subscribe, rate, review, all the rest of that, it's, uh, it is is a help to us. Uh, so we will be back next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Until then, we want to thank you guys for listening. Thanks again to Boston College coach Mike Gambino for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast presented by Soto. We'll talk to you guys next week.